0: Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians to think Christianly about all of life. So on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today's title is The Failure of Feminism. So in this episode, we're going to discuss the history of feminism from the 18th century to the present, and then also its impact on women, men, families, and culture. So this should prove to be, I think, an interesting topic. So Aaron, to get us started, can you tell us where feminism came from and what were some of the factors that helped it to take root in Western culture?
1: Well, in some respects, feminism traces its roots right back to the Garden of Eden because in the Garden of Eden, when Satan successfully duped the first man and the first woman into sinning against God, there was also conflict that inevitably rose between the man and the woman, between the husband and the wife. And we read about that in Genesis three sixteen, where she tries to usurp his authority and he tries to crush her. And throughout human history, we see that the effects of sin on marriage and relationships and men and women is, is a very real thing. And most people who have been alive for longer than a, a few decades know, know that, that it can be difficult, there can be a lot of confusion, there can be a lot of misunderstanding between men and women. But feminism formally as we know it can be traced back to the 1700s. The French Revolution was taking place in France. Now there's, there were some certain legitimate concerns that the French had. They were concerned about the absolutism of the the French monarch who wanted to control every single aspect of life. Sound familiar? Very. And they were concerned about the lack of religious freedom and social inequalities and sort of that third class of the French being treated like garbage and not having bread to to eat, all the abuses of human society. So the revolution sort of was encouraged by what was taking place or what had taken place in the American Revolution, and the the paupers rose up, and they demanded equality. They demanded bread. Uh, Hundreds of women marched uh, in France to demand bread for their families. There was massive inflation, all sorts of economic problems. So the French rose up during the French Revolution, but the problem with the French Revolution is it didn't really have a moral authoritative foundation to it and so it gave rise to certain elements of anarchy meaning groups that would be opposed to any form of authority including god's authority over life male authority in the home and led the way to what we now call a secularism and secularism markets itself as this morally neutral in between playing field where everyone can kind of come out and play and get along but in reality. Secularism is anti-God, it's anti-God's law, it's anti-biblical morals, it's anti-creational norms. Well, it was during that period of time that a woman by the name of Mary Wollstonecraft, who lived by the way from 1759 to 1797, she was a British writer, a women's, right advo- women's rights advocate. She sort of started to spar with a British MP by the name of Edmund Burke who from England was writing sort of in defense of the concept of the monarchy, sort of defending the monarchy even across the, the, the channel in, into France. She took issue with that. She wrote back. She sort of spoke out against some of the abuses that women and paupers and the, and the, the lower class were experiencing. And if you if you hear that, you're like, well, that kind of sounds like a justice issue. That sounds mm. like something we should all be concerned with. And it's true that many social justice movements do have certain elements to them that are righteous. There is a certain concern about justice, and there were a lot of injustices taking place in France at the time, and even in England. But the problem is, without a moral authoritative foundation, she kept going with her ideologies, and not only was she advocating for greater freedoms for women in terms of employment and opportunities and speaking out against classism. But she also unfortunately slid into immorality and didn't have a problem with dismantling all the the sexual mores of the day, the morals. She herself bore two children out of wedlock. And so on one hand, she's a woman who – is speaking out against injustice, but then it, you ask the question, well, what is the basis of injustice? Well, she didn't have any ultimate basis for injustice. So she, she, she essentially uh, paved the way for uh, what we now call the, the first, second, third, and fourth waves of feminism, which, again, tried to ground themselves in some sort of concern about social injustice, but ultimately opened the door for hedonism and godlessness and immorality And actually, in in many respects, uh, open the door for greater conflict between men and women, greater problems in the home. So the bottom line is the fundamental problem with feminism as we know it in our our culture is that it doesn't have a morally authoritative foundation to it. And without that morally authoritative foundation, which we would see as the Bible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You you end up having people rise up and creating their own new morality, their own sort of neo pagan morality, and that just brings increasing des- destruction to societies, mm-hmm. to to children, to 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 men, and so forth
0: and so on. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned the first, second, third, fourth wave feminism, and I've heard some of those waves referenced before in in uh, messages. Can can we unpack those one by one, which sure. each. Wave.
1: Yeah, so Wollstonecraft wasn't really part of those waves. She was sort of a forerunner to it, but many modern feminists will look back on women like her as significant players in this uprising of women to speak out against perceived social injustice. But first wave feminism was sort of the longest wave. And it, it can sort of be dated to the, the 1800s and into the early 1900s. Now, what feminism tries to do is it tries to both describe social structures and problems, and then it also tries to prescribe solutions. So in the description of problems, there can be some truth. Yep. So if if early feminists are speaking out against men beating their wives, so they're describing a problem, That's that's something that should be spoken out against. If they're speaking out against Social structures that f- force them to remain in poverty, even though they may be hardworking and 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 contributing members of society, that's a problem. So they're describing some of these issues, which are legitimate issues, but then in the prescriptive process, it's oftentimes it's the remedies they prescribe that actually are poison. It's like you go to the doctor, you have an infection, you want antibiotics, but he gives you poison and it makes the problem worse. Mm-hmm. So you're there seeking a solution, but you get the wrong solution. So first wave feminism was was primarily concerned with the women's suffrage movement, with giving women the opportunity to vote. Uh, several activists, activist associations were formed by first wave feminists across several Western nations, Canada, the US, Britain in the 1800s and 1900s and they urged officials to recognize a women's right to vote and they were also concerned about the opportunities that women needed to pursue advanced education. So most people today would say that's fine. You know, women vote, we have females in, in politics, why not open the door for women to uh, attain advanced degrees? So there was some success, ultimately they were successful in that. The uh, countries of Canada, and the UK awarded women the right to vote federally in uh, 1918, just sort of at the tail end of uh, World War I. And the various American states, going back to as early as 1869, awarded women the, the, the right to vote. But connected to these discussions about a women's right to vote, among the first wave feminists, we start to see other issues arise a desire for sexual liberation, sort of this idea that being married, being chased, raising children is, is a bad thing, it's an oppressive thing. Would, we started to see discussions arise about abortion rights and, and other ideals that later feminist movements would, would take to a whole, a whole new level. So fundamentally first wave feminism was about unhitching women from the cultural norms, in Christendom and Western civilizations, giving them the right to vote, giving them the right to, to pursue advanced education. But again, without a morally authoritative voice to undergird that, it, le- it led to the second, third and fourth waves. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So then that brought us to the early 1900s somewhere in there. Is that when second wave started then? Yeah. So second wave feminism sort of really took off in, in
1: the sexual revolution of the 1960s. So we see the more of an emphasis in the in the middle 1800s through the early 1900s on first wave feminism, a little bit of a lull, and then we have the sexual revolution of the 1960s. So second wave feminism is fundamentally spanning the 1960s and 1970s, and it was during that period of time, uh, emboldened by the successes of earlier feminists, that second wave feminism focused on liberating women from the so-called antiquated sexual norms of Western culture, a lot of discussion surrounding what they call reproduction rights, which involves two things, the use of birth control to limit pregnancy and abortion in the event that you became pregnant and didn't want to be pregnant. There was also an emphasis on the normalization of fornication. So that historic notion that you know a woman would be chaste, that she would cherish virginity, that was essentially thrown out the door through the sexual revolution, and there was a heavy emphasis on women pursuing all of the the sexual opportunities that that they perceived men, you know, had been long afforded. Now it is true that you know in a broken world there was some hypocrisy. Uh, men tended to be more perhaps give themselves a little bit more opportunity to experiment sexually than they would give to their own wives or to mm-hmm. to women there was almost it, i wouldn't say i wouldn't go so far as to say that it was culturally acceptable to fornicate as a man but there was less stigma attached to that than there was to women i mean even today you'll sometimes meet men that aren't virgins but they they just really want to make sure they marry a virgin mm-hmm. and there's some hypocrisy in there yeah. so i'm not suggesting that western civilization or these former former countries that were known as christendom you know were were pure and virtuous feminism was pointing at some of that hypocrisy and some of the the unnecessary inequalities that existed between men and women and pointing out some of the abuses that men had levied against women so again just as in most modern social justice movements there are there is some truth there. When we saw the Black Lives Matter movement rise up, th- there is some truth to that. Black lives do matter, and there there is some evidence uh, in uh, Western culture that your skin color does affect the way you're treated. So there's there are there is some truth there that needs to be addressed and acknowledged. But of course, with the BLM movement, it's about Marxism and the breakdown of the nuclear family, which sounds a lot like. We'll get to it, but fourth-wave feminism. Mm. So in this, in second-wave feminism, a lot of emphasis on a, a woman, not the man. This is really critical. Not the man having a say in reproductive rights, but reproductive rights increasingly became uh, w- placed within the, the authoritative sphere of the woman alone. Mm-hmm. So even fast-forwarding into the present, you'll often hear people say, a man has no right over what takes place in a woman's body. It's like, yeah, but that's my child. Shouldn't a man who has participated in the conception of a child have a have a say in the future of that child? But in second wave feminism there was that. And then there was also a lot of um, cultural taboos through the 60s and 70s removed surrounding, you know, pornography. So the pornographic industry, uh, became sort of normalized and it was normal for 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 women to dress in very seductive ways and to present themselves as as sexual objects kind of right out in public and so moving into the present it's not uncommon for us to see billboards or internet images or even people walking on the street that frankly are dressed in a way that historically would have been considered a mark of a prostitute. And it's Mm -hmm. that's been normalized for a woman to, you know, show her breast, to show um her her midriff, to wear scantily clad, sometimes see-through clothing, you know, to show up on a beach without a top on, these sorts of things, these would have been unheard of in historical Western cultures. But through the through the feminism, the, the feministic efforts of the 1960s and 70s, it's become uh pretty normal. I'd also mention that there was a, at the same time as women longed for greater sexual freedom, there was a de-emphasizing and even a stigmatizing of traditional domestic mothering roles, which we see even into the moment. There, there's young women and it's interesting how we're, we're often affected by worldviews, but we don't even know it. We have even Christian young women who don't actually wanna even go into a particular career. They, they want to be mothers. But they're sort of pressured into getting a degree first, and then they get the degree, and then they go and have kids anyway, they don't even use the degree for the mm-hmm. most part. So we're not opposed to women uh, having degrees. My wife has, um, you know, some some degrees, and uh, you know, we're in favor of advanced education. But it's this pressure that women often experience that, well, being a mother is sort of something for later in life, sort of delay that, like maybe. You can get there eventually, but real life is about being a career woman. Real life is about competing with men in the the uh, the career uh, marketplace. So again, to be sure, second wave feminism did bring some much needed attention to bear on um, some of those spousal abuse issues, rape, violence that was taking place in in some aspects of culture, but really didn't provide any sort of um, thoughtful analysis of the creational norms or the biblical values and principles that actually are supposed to be brought to bear on broken cultural s- constructs in order to bring freedom and liberty. So if you really want to fix a culture, if you really want to bring true equality defined by by God, you have to point people back to creational norms and the word of God. You can't just make it up. If you just make it up out of thin air you, you end up getting yourself you end up creating more issues for yourself which is ultimately where second wave feminism led
0: mm-hmm. now I'm seeing a little bit of a trend as they people kind of get further and further from God's word I imagine third wave feminism isn't going to be better but tell us about third wave feminism <laughs> no, no so you know second
1: wave feminism was successful in eroding the virtue of chastity so mm-hmm. that was no longer considered virtuous they eroded the value of marriage that wasn't considered to be virtuous anymore. They eroded the value of bearing children and nurturing children and the value of life, unborn life in particular. They encourage women to openly compete with men in in all career paths. Even some career paths that objectively you look at and say that's not really for women. Like there's certain career paths that women just aren't biologically designed to to excel in. It's a reality. Heavy, heavy lifting in these sorts of things. You have to be an unusual woman to be successful in some of these careers. But it was sort of this encourage, encouragement to, to, instead of recognizing your, your femininity and your limitations, just like we would encourage men to re- recognize their masculinity and the limitations attached to that, that was all tossed out. So third wave, fe- third wave feminism uh, can be dated to the, the very late 1980s. So let's just say 1990 into the 2010s. And what it sought to do is to extend the efforts of second wave feminism into matters of what, what were known as intersectionality, uh, abortion rights, race and class struggle. So in the 1980s, there was a, a female lawyer, Kimberly Crenshaw, and she developed the idea of intersectionality to explore, explore the various intersecting aspects of human identity. So how does your gender, your race, your skin color, your, your class – affect the treatment that you receive in culture. And this is where this idea of systemic oppression rose up. So women like Crenshaw and third wave feminists were especially interested in exploring and discussing how your, the, your um, constituent parts in culture affected, intersected, and affected how you were treated. So if you were a woman, well, they would automatically assume that you must be being mistreated because it's a, it's a male-dominated patriarchal culture, they claimed. And so to be a woman is to have a point against you, to be from an ethnic minority group in a particular culture is to have a point against you, to identify with a you know non-binary sexual identity is to have a point against you. So what they were arguing, really, it was quite a political movement. Third wave feminism wanted greater representation in politics. And, and we've seen that. We've seen successes in our own county. We just had a municipal election. Eight mayors were elected in our eight different regions. And I believe, I think five out of eight are women. So there's actually a greater number of female mayors in our county than there are male mayors. So they wanted greater representation in politics. They wanted to redefine language that was considered oppressive or sexist. They wanted to fight against all female stereotypes. This is the goal of third wave wave feminism. So what what they did quite successfully is openly attack and in doing so, promote this idea of the patriarchy as an oppressive structure. So this is actually largely a Darwinian notion that at different points in evolutionary processes, there are creatures or genders that sort of dominate culture. And in Darwinian theory, we're living during a period of time where men are dominating over women and there's necessarily oppression that takes place there. So anytime a man exercises any authority over a woman or offers leadership over a woman, getting down to the most ridiculous and the absurd, if a man opens the door for a woman Mm. or offers to shovel the snow for a woman or offers to take the garbage out or says, hey, let me initiate in prayer, that's considered an oppressive domineering action. and And it has to be overturned in order for third wave feminist ideals to flourish. So strangely, while... Blaming men for the inability that women supposedly were experiencing to fully flourish and to fully be advanced in culture. Third wave feminism also contributed to the now cultural, culturally venerated, hallowed notion of genderlessness, mm-hmm. that gender isn't binary. So we know that we're living in this very woke culture where gender for – for many is considered just a, a cultural construct. It's just it's a made up category that doesn't actually exist. You're you, you should consider yourself genderless in a certain respect, sort of a blank card and then and then choose your gender or make up your own gender. So while this is true of all woke ideologies, on one hand, it's like, well, men are the oppressors, women are the oppressed. heterosexuals are, the oppressors and the trans movement are the oppressed, but at the same time, there is no gender and there is no sexuality. So it's kind of a weird and ironic uh, aspect of third wave feminism. Mm -hmm.
0: So then fourth wave feminism, I would assume started after 2010, it carries us into today?
1: Correct, yeah. So fourth wave feminism is sort of the wave that feminists would describe we're currently living in. So we have, Fourth wave feminism wants to take those ideologies that started in, in um, the 1700s through Wallstonecraft, first wave, second wave, third kind of ramp them up, emphasize them a little bit more. And it, the one thing that we have now in the last you know 20 years or so is we have the rapid expansion of social media, internet-based technologies. And we also have in Western culture, this tendency to to uncritically embrace and champion every social justice movement. So when uh you know, for for example, we have Christians even that will that will champion the LGBTQ agenda because they heard one story of one gay person that got beat up by a bunch of heterosexuals in some rural community in America. So therefore it's a justice issue, we have to speak out against mm-hmm. that. Or they hear a story about a man that's slapping his wife around, so all of a sudden they jump on the, the feminist bandwagon. Or, you know, whatever whatever the issue might be, someone is raised in a community where they worked hard and got all A's in school and still didn't get it to university because they didn't have the finances. So in, all these social justice movements, I'll say it again, at the risk of seeming redundant, they do tend to sort of grab hold of something, that's broken or something that's not right, something that's not just in culture. And there's more and more things to grab onto because we're moving further and further away from a morally authoritative voice, God. So you're going to have more and more opportunities for various social justice movements to rise up, but they kind of become like policemen who are a law unto themselves. If a, police officer is going to enforce the law, there has to be a law code that he is held to. If a preacher is going to preach God's word, there has to be the presumption that God has said something that's authoritative enough to preach and is binding upon our lives. But these social justice movements don't have that. They actually don't want that. The very moral law code that historically undergirded and was the foundation for Western civilization, they've actually put it through the paper shredder, mm-hmm. the Bible, they're not interested in that. They denounce the church, they they denounce faithful churches, they denounce uh, the exclusivity of the Christian call to surrender to Christ and Christ alone. So we have in this fourth wave, uh, all these social justice movements converging, and for fourth waivers, intersectionality has become a major, major focus. Now, they tend to draw their theories from personal experiences. So if you, if you wanted to actually do a, an objective scientific study on, let's say, spousal, spousal abuse or um, negative male dominance in culture or uh, you know, inequality in the workplace, you would actually be hard-pressed. To, to quantify their claims that women are oppressed in our culture. Women have all sorts of opportunities being afforded to them in careers and universities. I've heard many times the majority of women that graduate from our Canadian universities are, are the, the majority of students are women. There's all sorts of opportunities for women to advance themselves, but Fourth wave feminism doesn't rely upon that. It's highly individualistic, mm-hmm. so they appeal to personal experiences. So if a woman puts up her hand and says, I was abused by a man, the guy is sort of guilty until proven innocent instead of innocent until proven guilty, that whole Me Too movement yeah. where you have, to, you have to assume that the testimony of a woman is accurate because – of intersectionality, she is female, therefore comes from an oppressed class within culture. So she gets the lion's share of the trust from culture. Mm-hmm. If someone says, "I'm a, I'm a victim of racism," and they come from a, a minority group, it's like, "Well, you have to, you can't question that." So it, the, their theories are largely drawn from the personal experiences of women, and. These fourth wave feminists claim that true equality and liberty is impossible for women unless we eradicate notions of class, binary gender, sexual stereotypes, authority structures for some racial inequalities, and male privilege. So they kind of bring together all the groups, they ally with the LGBTQ groups, the Black Lives Matter, the Marxist groups, the pro-choice groups, the radical egalitarian churches are glad to jump in, jump in as well and lend their support. Indigenous rights organizations. W- why are all these groups sort of in cahoots? Because of this notion of intersectionality. That everybody is sort of a minority. Everybody is oppressed. Everybody wants their special day, their special holiday to be recognized. And the oppressors, are stereotypically males, men, and in particular, men of European stock. The reason for that is is simply because European men up till recently have for several centuries represented political authority in Christian Christianized nations. If, if it had been different, and it was Arab men in that role, or Middle East um, uh, Asian men in that role, or, or Latino men in that role, then they would be in the crosshairs. But because, for the you know, since the time of the Reformation onward, it's been primarily you know Caucasian European men who have represented Christian values and principles in the church and in society and in politics. They're the ones that are in the crosshairs. So they've they've moved they've successfully moved their cause, Chris, from the fringes into mainstream culture. And because of that, fourth wave feminist ideals are taught in pretty much all western universities. They are championed by pretty much all mainstream politicians. Our own prime minister in Canada, Justin Trudeau, on his official biography calls himself a feminist. Hmm. And not a masculinist, but a feminist. He, he describes himself as a, a proud feminist, and you'll know that he appointed Canada's first gender-balanced cabinet, where regardless of who's elected, regardless of skills or portfolio or background, it's 50% men and 50% women mm-hmm. on, in his cabinet. Well, um, here's the thing. Feminism has also done a really good job in chastising those that disagree or challenge the narrative. So if you speak out against feminism, what are you? Oh, you're a misogynist. You hate women. Mm -hmm. You are a racist because that's tied into the, the idea of that systemic oppression. You're transphobic. You're guilty of hate speech. So not only are these allegations patently false, but they do have a devastating influence and impact upon women, upon men, and upon culture as a whole. Mm-hmm. It's really bad stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting as feminism continues to go along, <clears throat> march along, it, even, it seems to become less about femininity itself, but it becomes it's broadened its scope, right? So we're going to maybe delve into next. How does this actually backfire? And you kind of alluded to that a little bit, but how does this actually backfire on men and women? Yeah. So first of all, the Christian church
1: needs to be on the forefront of genuinely addressing true injustices. So we should be the first, you know, to grab a guy by the collar and tell him to smarten up if he's not blessing and loving his wife mm-hmm. as he should have declared he would in his marital vows. We should have no toleration for physical or sexual abuse. In fact, if someone's committing a, a criminal act in a church or pastors like us become aware of it, we will handle it readily pass that person off to the state to be subject to criminal prosecution because it is the state's responsibility to wield the sword and to oversee public justice. so we don't tolerate that. We don't we don't tolerate men violating God's laws violating God's word. Uh, we don't tolerate promiscuity from from either gender we don't tol- tolerate fornication. so just so everyone's hearing me clearly if there is genuine injustice, Sin is what it is taking place in our churches, our culture, our family by men. That needs to be addressed just like we would do it if it was a woman. So, that's I want that to be clear. But Christianity serves a purpose in culture. And even if a person is not born again and on their way to heaven, when you read the Bible, God's word is not just about how to make it through life and get to heaven. God's word also provides basic moral, authoritative structures and teachings about human conduct. It actually provides a job description for kings and queens in Romans 13. Mm -hmm. tells them how they're supposed to conduct themselves. It talks about taxation. It talks about children surrendering to the authority of their parents, honoring their parents. So the Bible provides very practical advice for life in the here and now. It provides economic advice. We're not gonna have to worry about money in heaven. We're gonna be casting our riches at Christ's feet. Mm -hmm. But in, in this life, the Bible provides practical laws, teachings, and principles for how to live your life in a physical world. And it also provides structures for how men are to conduct themselves and women are to conduct themselves. And I'm not gonna spend this whole podcast unpacking that, But without apology, because creatures don't apologize to other creatures for what the Creator has said, in the area of marriage, the husband has spiritual authority over his wife. He does. We don't deny that. Parents have authority over their children together. Elders have spiritual authority over their church. Fathers aren't pastors of their families. Pastors aren't fathers of your kids unless you're, you're the wife, mm-hmm. and the church isn't the state, and the state isn't the church. There's these various spheres of authority that God has ordained. So instead of making men the new class of villains, which is interesting, they spe- feminism has always spoken out against classism, this idea of dividing culture into the, the higher tier, the more valuable people, and the lesser people, but they're doing the same thing. Oh, if you're a white Anglo-Saxon Christian male, you're now in the low class. You sh- Even if you didn't do anything wrong, you should be apologizing for everyone else in your class. So the problem with feminism, think even the word feminism, mm-hmm. it's about women. It's it's innately classist. Where's where's a philosophy called masculinism? It doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So it's a classist structure. And same with the BLM, Black Lives Matter. As soon as you say, well, actually don't all lives matter? Oh, you're a racist. So... It's classist, and therefore, if it's classist, it's divisive. Feminism is very divisive, and it contributes to a new kind of class warfare. But instead of women being the targets, men now become the targets Mm -hmm. as we move through those various waves of feminism. It's a denial of headship. Practically speaking, you know what it does? And And I know this from many years of pastoral experience. A lot of young men even in the christian church that are influenced by the broader culture want to be married but they're terrified of women they're terrified they're, they're i've had them tell me they're they're terrified to have a conversation with a woman because they've been told what not to do but not what to do mm. they've been told that they need to apologize they've been told that they're the problem it's like you know the reality is a lot of young men don't have a great deal of wisdom or verbal skills and someone throws some ideology at them. As soon as they open the door for their girlfriend, they get they take heat for it. They, they try to have a conversation with their 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 wife, especially for young married men about maybe a concern, and they're terrified of what the response is going to be. They live in fear, and mm-hmm. it's because they've been influenced by feministic ideals. Instead of being confident and comfortable with what God has given to them as their job description, as their ministry role in their family, they don't know what to do. So it's backfiring. And then we have a lot of young women walking around saying, I'd kind of like to be married. Where's all the guys? Well, what feminism does is it pits men against women. It doesn't reverse Genesis 3.16. It accentuates the problem. It accentuates it. And so this this is a huge issue. It also takes the responsibility for child rearing out of the hands of men. So if, if a man's been told, look, you can get a girl pregnant, but that's not your child. You have no, no authority over that child in utero. Now, what's going to suddenly motivate the guy once the child takes its first breath to take meaningful responsibility over that child? Mm-hmm. You've, you've been telling me the whole time this is not my child. I have no say, I have no role in the future and the in the very life of this child. If if the mom wants to abort the child, she just goes and aborts the child. She doesn't need to get consent from the from the father. Mm-hmm. So it creates this irresponsibility that we see in a lot of men where a lot of men don't want to take responsibility for their children because they've been told since the time they were knee high to a grasshopper, the child's really not yours. Mm-hmm. And so that 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 uh, singular authority that pro-abortionists claim and grant to women in utero is extended into into uh, adulthood. And then we have the the rise of, do the, the people not see the connection between the my body, my choice crowd and the single uh, mother syndrome that we're experiencing in our culture? Now there's, you know, sometimes mothers are single because their husbands were killed or died or, you know, whatever, just ran out on them and they're, they're they're innocent of any wrongdoing and the bible has something to say about taking care of widows and orphans but if you create a culture where young men are told you have no say you're just a sperm donor essentially you have no say over that child it's her it's her choice and her choice alone and you receive a venomous pushback if you say actually i want to say in the very life of this child again, once that young man perhaps is invited to, f- to actually parent that child, there's always this s- subtle sense that it's, it's more hers than his. Mm-hmm. And so it provides immature, godless men who don't have a biblical creational worldview with ample reason just to walk out. I remember being in Jamaica years ago and talking to some, we were doing some scuba diving. I used to like to do that and talking to some guys in the boat and they're talking about, you know, they have baby mama here and a baby mama there. And the idea is, you know, I got I got a kid over here and a kid over here and a kid over here, and they're just laughing about it. This is normal,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we see that in 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 the West as well. And it, it's a problem. So, um, we also would say there's there's two other problems. We we know of uh, men who are qualified for a particular job or area of employment that are just flat out denied because they're male. Mm-hmm. So now it's reverse discrimination. It's like sorry. Uh, you know, we're hiring in this government role and we're equal opportunity employers. And even if we got a hundred resumes from qualified men and only five from qualified women, you know, we're going to hire two men and two women and the other 98 guys can go pound salt. So it's, it's not right. What's the motive and incentive for people to work if we're just taking this classist problem, which has existed for a long time because of human sin, and we're just transferring it to a new class of people. Mm-hmm. Let's let's put these guys at the bottom of the barrel. I I know of a friend who years ago applied to be a police officer, and he was told, you're not going to get the job because you're a white male. It's just not going to happen. So he went to school. He did training and stuff, but too bad you're a white male. You're, we don't want to have a conversation with you. That's sad. Mm-hmm. That doesn't help. That's not justice. That's not equality, it's the opposite. It's creating the problem that you're trying to fix and actually accentuating it.
0: Do you think that's tied in a little bit to the idea of an improper view of justice where it's like, it's almost like men have to take a turn being on the bottom of the totem pole for a, a couple centuries to make up for their injustice?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it is just that. And again, it's that notion of somehow you're responsible for the sins of your forebears and if you have any privileges uh, you know you, you you should sort of give them back because those might be the result of the sins of your forebearers. so if you mm-hmm. it's interesting people still love inheritance laws <laughs> yeah. we haven't yet got to a point where when your parents die your property is just equally distributed to all citizens or back to the state like everybody receives certain privileges as a result of the culture the parents they were born into. But that's okay because there's this this idea of corporate solidarity in the Bible that you aren't just some radical individual. You are, you must be, you must individually repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. But what in the world do we have genealogies in the scripture for? Just to mm-hmm. provide a historical context? No. Those genealogies help the people of God to place themselves as individuals within a historical. Timeline within God's redemptive timeline, seeing themselves as individuals, yes, but also part of a whole, a people of God, a covenantal people. And we live in a culture that's hard for people to even imagine. They just, we're so individualistic. We don't see ourselves as part of a whole. We're not responsible for the past. And frankly, we could care less about the future and how our decisions impact lives to come. So there is this uh, sense in a lot of these justice movements that so you have to run around apologizing not for the sins you've committed, but for any advantages you may have received from the sins of your forebears. Well, that's a that's an egg that can't be unscrambled. I mean, how do you do that? What, what if what if you have one grandfather that enslaved your other grandfather, and you're the offspring of both? Do you apologize to yourself? Um, what if you? were part of a particular, you know, your heritage is part of one ethnic group that oppressed and abused and stole land from an ethnic group that's also in your past. I mean, we're all sort of multi-ethnic for the most part. We all, if you go back far enough, we have, we're not purebreds, you know, we're all from a variety of ethnic groups. And surely if we traced history back, even into periods of unwritten history, if we could kind of rewind the clock, I would experience, we would all experience ancestors in our past, people that were conceived through rape, um, people that were conceived through incest, people that had land stolen from them by by other people that we're now related to as well. So how do you unscramble that egg? Do we just limit it to the last 30 generations? Take the Métis issue in Canada, right? So Métis are uh, uh, an ethnic group in, in our country that come from both indigenous background and european background well so under this intersectionality theory the europeans just abuse the heck out of the the indigenous side of your family so like does does half of you apologize to the other no we live in a culture of convenience where everyone wants to be the victim so you just identify the areas you've been victimized in and that becomes the group that is most likely to advance your agenda I have a friend who is black, um, at least that's how society would describe him, he's black. I don't like that language because this black-white stuff, we're all shades of brown, but he, he's black. And he's telling me all of a sudden that he discovered that he has indigenous blood in his background, so he's applying for tax exemption status. Like, dude, did you even know you're indigenous? No. Have you ever, has it, have you ever thought about it? No. Have the indigenous issues affected your life? No, but it's it's well I can I can save on taxes, right? Like why? Like if 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 I went back long enough, I'd probably discover some indigenous background in my family too, and maybe you would as well. Who knows? The point is it we gotta get away. When when Paul taught the Galatian church, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free male nor female in Christ, he wasn't saying there's no genders. And there's no such thing as people who are enslaved and no such thing as people that are free. And he's he's not saying there's no such thing as Jews and Gentiles anymore. But the gospel levels the playing field mm-hmm. and reminds us that our ultimate identity and ultimate value is in Christ. Not in all these ridiculous social constructs that we like to, to make up. Now, there are certain creational social constructs that God has made up, and one of them is gender. He made them male and female. We read about that in the opening verses of our Bible, male and female. There's not five genders, there's two. And there are boundaries and rules to that, but they're not bad. They're good. Men are not women, and women are not men. That's, that's part of the beauty and mystery and diversity of God's creational ideals. But here's what you do. I have a suspicion that one of the reasons why we see a rise in homosexuality same-sex relationships, right? is because when you create a culture where women feel that they are constantly abused and under the thumb of men, but still want relationships and sexual intimacy, they flee to another woman to find that. Hmm. And men that are terrified to be manly and that are terrified to pursue a woman because they've been subtly slapped in the hand over and over and over again through their upbringing and maybe even raised by a domineering mother and a passive father... Flee into the arms of another man. So there's a psychology to sin. And I, I have this sense that one of the reasons why there is apparently a rise in homosexual relationships is not because of the gay gene. It's because we're ruining culture and we're reducing and destroying God's creational biblical norms. And that opens the door for people to try to find satisfaction and love in non-creational forms of sexuality or to create ungodly oppressive structures in culture that don't actually help anybody. So how do we fix that? Well, we preach the Bible and we take people back to God's creational norms, his biblical rules, his laws that govern maleness, femaleness, marriage, parenting, authority structures. We teach it. We model it. We hold people accountable to it. We practice church discipline when people refuse it. That's how we bring hope and healing to, to the nations, and that's how we actually put the gospel on display, because in Ephesians chapter 5, when a man properly understands his role as a spiritual leader, and a woman properly understands her role as the church to her husband, to submit to him as the church submits to Christ, this is a beautiful thing, and together men and women have the capacity to put the gospel of Jesus Christ on display
0: which is a pretty cool thing and a a pretty lofty calling. Mm -hmm. So let's end with chatting through a little bit of the creational ideals that you mentioned, God's creational ideals. What is the true solution in a sense? Feminism described a problem. What's the actual actual solution? So on a macro level, it's the
1: acknowledgement that there are men and women. There are males and females. We have to acknowledge that. We have to strangely re-acknowledge that in culture. There are males and there are females. You don't get to pick your gender. God picks your gender, and you're either a man or a woman. So then the question is, what does that mean in terms of my relationships? Well, if you're a man and you're entering into marriage, you have the solemn responsibility to love your wife, to provide for your wife. The Bible says he who does not provide for his own is worse than an infidel worse than an unbeliever. So you have the primary responsibility to provide for your family. You have the responsibility to raise your children in the Lord, the fear and admonition of the Lord and not provoke them to anger. This means you need to be a man of the word, a man of prayer, a man of character, a man who can say, I'm sorry, because we're all gonna mess up at times, right? Mm -hmm. We all do that. And if you're a woman, you need to learn that God has created you to, to bear children, to nurture children. In in uh, family constructs, family dynamics I should say, men and women bring different aspects of uh, maleness and femaleness into the, the rearing of children. There doesn't have to be like one stereotypical male personality. Jacob was very diff- different than Esau. Jacob was a bit more of a homeboy. Esau was a bit more of a hunter. Cain and Abel were obviously different, that led to some major problems. But Cain and Abel, you look at these brothers in the Bible, they, they were different than one another. There's not like one stereotypical male, like if you don't wear a camo and drive a Harley, you're not a real yeah. man, it's not that. But maleness does involve an element of assertiveness, an element of dominance an element of initiative. I mean, even in the sexual act, not to be crass, but it's the man that initiates and the woman that receives. That's how we're biologically designed. And there's a display there in that sexual act of positive dominance, of positive leadership. Ultimately, what was lost in Eden can be regained as husband and wife, male and female, surrender themselves to Christ and make him their Lord and King. And then learn to abide by his laws and put them into practice in all spheres of life.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's very helpful. I think the uh, just walking through how history has got it wrong helps to not only help our listeners and myself, being born after, well, in the midst of second or should I should say third wave feminism, um, to kind of understand how things have gone wrong and to to start seeing where we need to make things right. Um, I wanted to ask real briefly, do you want to just give our listeners a heads up about the Mission of God conference coming here? Yeah, we can do that. So
1: on December the 10th, which is a Saturday, we're going to be hosting a a one-day Mission of God conference on behalf of the Ezra Institute here at Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. And uh, we're a border city, so we're, we're right up close to Detroit, Michigan. So if you're an American listener, you can just pop into Detroit, come across the border if you'd like. It's thirty five bucks. It's like super super cheap. And that's Canadian dollars. So if you're an American, that's like five bucks. <laughs> it's yeah. even cheaper. Basically, it's free. Basically, we'll pay you to come. Um, so that's going to be a a, a culture um, a conference that focuses on climate change, mm-hmm. and we're going to discuss the the idea of biblical stewardship up against this sort of neo pagan utopian concept that we can fix the world for human ingenuity. It's sort of a false, fake, pseudo. Theology of Stewardship. So Dr. Joe Boot, who um, many know who heads up the Ezra Institute, he'll be speaking at that. I'll, I will be speaking at that. And then Andre Schutten, that's a lawyer for ARPA, will also be speaking at that. So it's kind of conference season. There's lots lots going on in, in our province and in other jurisdictions as well. But um if anybody would like to come to that. Registrations are now open. You can go to ezrainstitute.ca to register for that. I know they're already taken registrations. If they receive, they just opened this week and I think in the first day it was 80 or 90 tickets sold. Um, So yeah, if you want to be part of that, get in on that. We'd love to have you. And, uh, you know, it's just a a Saturday only, so it's not even a a huge commitment, but um, I think you'll be blessed by it.
0: Yeah, tremendous. Well, thank you, Aaron, and thank you to each of our listeners today for taking the time to think through these important matters with us. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider helping us to reach more listeners, and you can do that by sharing this episode or rating the podcast. Just a reminder as well that Leadership Now is aired two times a week on the CJXC radio. And it's also available on demand from the Fight Laugh Feast app, Aaron's personal blog, pursuitofglory.org, and your favorite podcast apps like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. We hope you'll tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rod.